everyone. Welcome to the Curiosity Cast, a place where we explore a variety of topics, meet interesting people, and follow our curiosity wherever it takes us. I'm your host, Allie Merrill, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're sharing an interview that David Clock originally did with the Neighborhood Arts Collective with Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. She is a sex therapist and an author and a lot of other things, and I will let him introduce her, but just wanted to let listeners know that this episode does talk about sex. I'm David Clock from the Neighborhood Arts Collective. I interviewed Tina Shermer Sellers, Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, and I was interested to talk to her because she seems to be in this unique position of working with with students, graduate level students, um, and and post-collegiate after college students, graduate students, um, in, in a really uh, specific field, but she brings together so many different professional experiences and, and areas um, and kind of combines her experience as an educator, uh, secondary teacher, um, a, a professor, a uh, marriage and family counselor, uh, uh, sex therapist, all of these interrelated but somewhat distinct professional arenas. She brings those together and refuses to um, compartmentalize them. So she's just a fascinating character and I think an unfortunately all too rare voice in, uh, in our society right now. I'm Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sex therapist, a medical family therapist. I am the founder of the Northwest Institute on Intimacy here in Seattle, Washington, and I am the author of Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. And that's pretty good. I'm Married and the mom of um, two kids, Christian and Chloe, and the stepmom of Caitlin and Bo, and we have a wonderful family. And I am the yaya of a little Quincy who is 18 months old. I'm a pretty passionate person, and so I love being in things that I love. Um, and um, People who've known me a long time know that I wanted to be a mom from a really early age, and I also wanted to be a career person. Um, I wrote an article, gosh, I think in 2004, um, looking at women who felt dually called, Christian women, in, women in fact, who felt dually called to motherhood and career. And I specifically looked at Christian women because in the Christian circle, Christian women often feel like they have to choose. Um, because I had felt very much called to both and loved both and found that they both informed each other. Um, so uh, I, I've, I love being a mom. I didn't I didn't enjoy cooking. I didn't enjoy cleaning. There was a lot about the stuff, 
underneath that I didn't necessarily enjoy, but did it, you know, did it fine. And everybody grew up healthy and happy and all that. But, um, but I loved being a mom and I took it really seriously and, um, I have great relationships with my kids. And now that they're adults, you know, we have great conversations about those years. My son was two when I started grad school to be a family therapist. My daughter was born literally um, the week, two weeks later, I took my last final for grad school. Um, so literally as I was completing grad school, my daughter was born. So like they were literally, you know, hatched in the midst of it all. You know, as a marriage and family therapist, as a sex therapist, they've been in the midst of all of that. Um, so it's been wonderful. They've been teaching me, I've been teaching them. Um, so it's been a co-creation and, um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, they've made me better for it. Um, so yeah, I, it's hard for me to separate it out. I was often asking myself the question, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the month, at the end of the year, at the end of five years, at the end of a decade, what is going to be most important to them that they have received from me? Is it gonna be a clean living room? Is it gonna be the dishes were done? Is it going to be, you know, whatever? What are the things that are gonna be most important here as far as memories, as far as time with me, as far as boundaries, as far as love, as far as discipline, what's going to be most important? And those are the things that I would try to leave at the top of the list. And so it was just a matter of sort of deciding where our limits were going to go. It's hard when you're having to make those decisions of what good enough is going to be for you and saying no to your child and saying no to yourself and deciding on what that small piece is going to be for you. They're always asking for more. The world is always asking for more and you always have limits, financial limits, time limits, emotional limits, and physical limits. You always have a limited box that you're working with. I really like my relationship with my kids. Um, they're, they're, they are who they are. I mean, they're fiercely independent. They speak their mind. I think they always have. Um, and I think to me that says something about their sense of safety and that they don't try to protect me necessarily, that they know that I'm solid enough on my own feet that I can hear who they are and what they think and feel. We have this um, stance that we've talked about in our family growing up um, called the Orca stance. And I actually borrowed that from um, our program at school. And it's openness, respect, curiosity, and accountability to power, the power we have to hurt each other. And I actually interviewed them as adults a few years ago for a book that I'm writing with my faculty because I tried to do orca parenting with them as they were growing up. Um, and um, and I, I think I did it well. 
with them and we the kids and I talked about it. My daughter said I did it really well except for around tattooing and piercing. That that was the one place that I didn't do it well because I would, you know, sometimes have a hard time with that. Fair, you know. What would you say your life's work or your mission or your fill in the blank has been or is and why is that important? You know, years ago, um, when I was asked that question, it felt to me like my life had been taking these circuitous paths um, because it had been teaching and then um, marriage and family therapy and then medical family therapy and sex therapy. And it seemed like it didn't have any cohesion to it, right? Um, and then I had this student say to me, no, no, Tina, it has a ton of cohesion. There is this justice piece that aligns all of it. And that justice piece has to do with larger institutions that are meant to provide healing, and yet there is a place where they don't. <clears throat> so, for example, in teaching... It's meant to provide this container for healing, and yet it's not providing it. And you felt yourself pulled in to junior high and high school kids because they weren't listening to the wisdom of those kids. They were just plowing right over them, and these kids were coming to school, and they were being affected by their lives, and no one was listening. But you were hanging out with them and you were hearing what was going on at home and blah, blah, blah. And then that took you into marriage and family therapy so that you originally thought you would go back and start the counseling center at school that would say, let's listen, right? And then you got there and you started hearing about what was happening in medicine because that's what happened. And then you started realizing that forever we'd been doing medicine and no one was listening about the impact of illness on people's lives. We were just doing cancer treatment and we were doing all of these things, but people's lives were being affected. No one was looking at that. And that was astounding to you. And so you went into that and you were like, come on, we have got to do something here. If we're going to be living and into our 80s, and we no longer die of infections and wounds, and we're living with chronic illnesses that now affect every single person in the family, we can't ignore the impact of depression, anxiety on everybody in 15-minute appointments and expect a doctor to deal with that. And we can't ignore the effect of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, whatever, and then not deal with the effect on the spouse, the kids, da 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 da, -da. And nobody's listening. So I ended up in that for almost 30 years, right? And developed a, you know, a, a leading program in the country and blah, blah. Meanwhile, I'm teaching the human sexuality course at SPU forever and ever, and they're writing their sexual autobiographies, which every therapist needs to know what their stories are, right? So we write them in our program. And I start to notice that students who are writing about everything that everybody else has always been writing about, you know, I play doctor at five and whatever, you know. And now 
it starts to leap out of the page that they feel perverted playing doctor at five or their first kiss here or wanting to masturbate or all the same things everybody's ever done, but now they don't know that's normal. Now they think that they are the most horrible person that's ever walked the planet. So their naivete has changed. Like they feel way, they're way more naive than they ever were before. And they feel horrible shame for everything they've thought, desired, felt, or done in ways I've never seen before. And it's manifesting in their bodies, right? So they've, you know, all kinds of pain, all kinds of all kinds of things. So I'm thinking what's happened and I learn about the app. And I've heard about the abstinence only, of course, and the purity movement, but I did not realize it was manifesting in the way that it was manifesting. So then I'm thinking, the church has no idea that what it's actually doing in these areas is it's causing the symptoms of sexual abuse across the country. And it's, it's not just a, a church thing, it's a socio-political movement because the church is now in bed with the religious right. I just, you know, started doing research and I, and I, and I am a Christian, you know, I have a deep, deep love of the gospel message and the rebel of Jesus and everything that Jesus stood for is been a part of my life, um, my whole life. Um, and yet nothing about who Jesus was the ministry, anything could I find in any of this stuff that was hurting these kids. So again, that same piece of justice just got ramped in me, you know, and I thought somebody needs to say something. And I wanted to understand where did the church go wrong in this story? because it wasn't the story of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was very woman positive, body positive, everyone positive, you know, Gentile, Jew, um, all were welcome, you know, the whole thing. So I didn't know if we ever did develop a sex eth sexual ethic out of Jesus' ministry. I didn't remember hearing one, and I knew that the one that I thought got developed seemed like the same one that we basically had kept working with. So I did the research to find out what had happened. And in fact, we never did develop one. So then I thought, well, if this is the body we have and it functions the way that we do, clearly it was created this way. I knew that much from my studies. So I thought, well, I want to find on the Abrahamic line, did we have anything sex positive? And that's where I did all my studies. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to find something helpful and healing to the people whose faith they did not want to throw out baby with the bathwater. Because I, I wanted to, um, I wanted people to feel like they didn't have to choose between their sexuality and their spirituality. Because I really believe that there is some mysterious connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. 
And I'll tell you, that comes from working with people who've experienced sexual abuse. What, pe what, what people who've experienced sexual abuse have taught me is there is some connection. That when people are hurt sexually, they are hurt spiritually. I don't know that I understand it, but I've come to respect that. So I wanted to not put people in the position that they have to choose. I've also seen that working with the LGBTQ community, that they are in such a quandary often when they've been raised with a strong faith and they are gay or lesbian or trans and they feel like they have to divorce themselves from their faith and that feels so untenable to them and people feel forced to do that, which is horrible because they never should be forced to choose because again, those things are often married together, right? Which is one of the most horrible things we've ever done to LGBTQ people ever in my book. So that's, that's why I did that. That's why I, I was like, I have to see if on this line there is anything. And then that I got into all of, or not all, I got into a bunch of writing and I found some amazing stories. I just, yesterday, I just have to tell you that yesterday I um, had a, a man write me, a Jewish man write me, and he's actually a physician who's written his own sexuality book. And um, he had just finished my book um, last Sunday, or, la or no, he'd finished my book yesterday on the Sabbath. And, um, and he wrote me, it was the sweetest uh, email and he said, I just want you to know I finished your book. Um, uh, yes, on the Sabbath. And um, I feel I feel so loved. I just want you to know I just feel so loved. And um, and he said, and I want to share with you a story, a Jewish story. And it was just this really lovely old, old story of this um, student of a rabbi who felt like he wanted, this is going to sound funny, but he felt like he wanted to understand lovemaking so much that he snuck in um, to the bedroom of his rabbi and snuck under the bed. And he's listening to his rabbi make love to his wife. And in the middle of it all, as he's listening, he can tell that his rabbi sounds like he's making love to his wife for the very first time and that he's delighting so much in it that he says out loud, the, the, the student says out loud, it sounds like it's the first time. And then the rabbi says, what are you doing in here? And he says, I just wanted to understand so much. And he says, get out of here. Right? And, um, and the the guy that was writing me, he says, you've probably heard this story before. So I wrote him back and I said, I've never heard that story. That is such a great story. But it's so in line with all the other stories that I had found, which is this celebration of sexuality and this way in which we're supposed to understand that our sexuality in the context of deeply committed, long-term committed relationships is this celebration of delight and playfulness and, you know, just abandon, right? And that inside of that is this way in which we're to know how beloved we are of Yahweh, you know, of God. Um, and I get goosebumps even telling the story again because 
we being Christians never got that. You know, that this playfulness, this presence, this delight, it's not goal oriented. It's just connection and pleasure for the sake of connection and pleasure. Nothing else like children playing, you know, and that I guess kept coming up against that all the time as I got into um, Hebrew mystic writing, which was so fun. A lot of what I'm talking about lately is around sexual shame and the church. So once I find out the population that I'm talking to, then it's just, you know, shaping it to meet their particular needs. And um, people who've come from evangelical backgrounds and just are, have a lot of pain and are starving to hear about how we got it wrong and what we were meant to know. Another area that I talk about is, is in with women's groups around the sacred feminine and how we've really silenced the wisdom of the feminine. And we've done that historically over a long period of time. And we really need to work really hard now to keep women in front and to listen to the wisdom that women have. And I want to help women understand um, what we've done as a church to silence women so that we can now bring that forward and empower women to bring their voices and their wisdom now forward into the church and help all of us. Because it's not, it's not just what we've done to women, but it's what we've done to men in not allowing them to understand their feminine energies too and helping them to partner with women better. Um, because they've felt like they've needed to not be with women. They've had to not be in the same room. And, you know, they've had to sexualize women when they've not wanted to. And, you know, all kinds of things. So I'm wanting to sort of open that um, conversation up and help us to understand what we've done um, sort of incorrectly and, and in unhelpful ways over the years. Joshua Harris, we all know who he is. In case you're not familiar with Joshua Harris, he is an author who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye back in the 90s, and it became very popular in the conservative Christian realm and encouraged people not to date, not to kiss before marriage, a lot of maybe ex more extreme views on dating and relationships, and he has since revoked his views on a lot of what he wrote, but there was a lot of harm done, and he has since issued an apology for his book, which Tina is referring to here. He gave, you know, he was supposedly going to do something with this opportunity that he had, and he didn't, which was disappointing. And um, he did a TED Talk um, a year or so ago about how much he had learned, you know, from all the women that came forward. And, um, and it's an interesting TED Talk to listen to because it sounds like he's apologizing, but he doesn't apologize. He keeps himself front and center. He says, um, he talks, he starts out saying he's apologizing. And then what he says, the whole thing is about is he says, how much I have learned. So he keeps him, he centers himself in the talk. And I don't think he even realized it. I mean, a friend and I wrote an essay and then we eventually or she eventually got relevant to because they supported his TED talk 
and she eventually got Relevant to pull their essay and put hers up there um, because she called him out on he, he centered himself. And this is part of the church too thing when a white evangelical man keeps himself front and center, but you almost can't see it because it's been happening for so long, right? And I don't think he meant to do it, but he did. And when his documentary came out, he, again, he did all this apology, but at the very end, he recentered the whole thing that was the whole biblical, don't have sex until you get married, and it's all about white, really white men, and, and all about virginity. Well, no, it's not about virginity, it's not about property, it's not about women's vaginas, it's not. And so we keep doing this, but again, I'm not so sure that we're seeing it. So we've got a lot of work to do, I think. And, and until we get men as allies alongside women speaking with us or helping to sort of hold the mic with us, I don't think we're going to have quite the force forward that we want to have. And I really want men with us. You know, I'm sort of, I'm one of those women that my childhood my biggest allies in my life were men, was my father, my uncle, my figure skating coach. I mean, I had all men as my biggest allies. So I've all, not always, but my whole childhood, it was like, those were my people, you know? And, and since I've had many, many women, but, but that's sort of in my, like in my fiber, you know? So I, I don't, I didn't grow up with this sense that men weren't my allies at all. Um, I just think they, they've, they got the short end of the stick too. And I think they have a hard time sometimes seeing. It's in the same way in sexuality. I think so often in my practice, I'll be sitting with a man a hetero, in a heterosexual couple and a man will say, you know, we're not having enough sex. And I'll say, well, what kind of sex aren't you having enough of? And I'll say intercourse. And I'm like, you know, well, tell me more, you know. <laughs> and sure enough, yeah, they're not having enough intercourse. And I'll, we'll deconstruct it. And the intercourse they're having is terrible, right? It's like no fun. It's mopey. It's been two weeks. You know, well, who wants to have that kind of sex? No one. Well, he does because it's not, they're not having anything and he misses her. And, and she's like, well, you know, we've got three kids and that's no fun and I don't want to do that, right? But the thing is, he's willing to have that where her heart's not there, her body's there, her heart's not there, her eyes aren't there, but he's willing to settle for that. And I'll call that out. I'll say, it, it, how much fun is that for you to have your wife but not have her heart and not have her eyes? Like She's not really there, is she? And he's like, yeah, I don't really like it. And I'm like, yeah, and yet you're asking for it. So we get the truth out there. So what if we could change this? What if we could find a way 
I know it seems like a long shot, a long shot in hell, but what if we could find a way for the two of you to have an intimate life together where she's actually there and you're actually able to invite together connection and pleasure that you both want and you can see she's there and she wants to be there you want to be there. What if we could figure that out? And he's like, I know, I know, I know. You know what I mean? He goes, well, yeah, of course. I'm like, all right, okay, let's start there, right? This is, this is what is happening so often. But see, guys think that's as good as it gets because they've been raised in our culture to think they have to take it. They have to take it. And half the porn they watch is about taking. I'm going to take from this object what I want. Because it's an object. And they've been masturbating to it since they were 9 or 10. It's an object and I'm going to take from it. Because we never taught them about delighting with an other who wants to be there delighting with you. We never taught them that. So of course it ends up like that. We teach people, we teach heterosexual people. I think gay and lesbian people are having great sex a lot of times. But we teach heterosexual people to have lousy sex. Can you tell me about your family of origin? If you had these wonderful influences in your life, tell me about them. So I came, I come from a Swedish immigrant family, um, large piece of it. Um, the gift of that was that um, they brought with them this body positive, sex positive heritage um, that I thought was just, that's how families were. Um, and uh, lo and behold, it wasn't at all. <laughs> um, and it's funny, you know, you talk to other people who grew up in families like mine, and that's, that is the assumption because it is so normal. It is so like Cheerios. It is so what you do. And um, you're, it's so like that, that, and so woven into everyday life, that it really does take you a long time to realize other families aren't like that. I swear I was in my 30s before I realized that other families weren't like mine. Um, even though I was telling friends, about, oh, no, that's not the way it is, or, you know, I just didn't realize I was the sex educator. I just didn't realize it. <laughs> um, I would talk, and they talked among themselves, my grandparents, my aunts, my great aunts, my mom, my dad, you know, it was an open conversation between everybody, um, serious and goofy all along, and um, so... So even things like being asked to teach at the junior high level, I didn't think anything of it. And when I started teaching at SPU, they needed someone to teach sex, the human sexuality class, which is a required course for licensure. I just said, sure, not noticing that nobody else wanted to teach it. Like, it's my favorite class. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, 90 to 95 percent of people grow up in silent or silent and shaming homes. 
I just think there's something so, um, I don't know, stabilizing about being able to talk about sexuality with your parents. It's a big deal, I think. Bigger than I think I even realize. I've come to realize more over time. So that was a big thing. Having a, I didn't have as close a relationship with my mom. Um, my mom was a runway model when she was growing up. And, um, and in her home, boys were much more important than girls. <clears throat> so I think that that didn't give her the, much confidence. And, but I had a really close relationship with my dad, and that was really helpful. I was a figure skater growing up, and that was a wonderful part of my childhood. Um, and gave me just a lot of confidence. And there were definitely, as I started studying family therapy, I could see that some of the harder parts of my life, like my relationship with my mom, which was a difficult part of my life. <clears throat> and then I married young, and um, that relationship was very, very difficult. And um, we were together a long time, but we split up when our kids were six and 11. And I was single mom for nine years. That was very difficult. And while I would never want to live those things over again, I also wouldn't take those things away from me either. Um, what those taught me, what they've made into me, um, the awareness that I have, the wisdom that I have, the compassion that I have, the um, just the awareness around humanity and um, our foibles and um, what early trauma can do and shape how it shapes us and the blind spots it gives us. Um, also the forgiveness we're capable of. Um, the, my kid's dad and I have, because of our commitment to our children have had to forge a relationship that um, my mom and dad, who divorced when I was 17, um, my mom was unwilling to do with my father. And, um, and I watched that and said, that will never, I will never do that because that is so harmful to children. You know, no matter what transpired here. I will forge that. We will find a way to forge that. And, um, and come hell or high water, we did, you know. Um, and so learning about what you can do um, if you must do, you know. And it, it was not a must that you can, we could do in a marriage. It was not possible, not without destroying me or destroying our children. Um, but, but it could be done in um, in a two-parent home or, yeah, two-home family. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of what we've done now 20-some-odd years later. I love that idea of you wouldn't go back and relive those experiences, but you also wouldn't take them away from you either. Um, it seems to me that too few people can look back on difficulties with that type of posture. Could you talk not about specifics, but about the idea of regret just as an abstract thing? What are your thoughts on that? I don't want to live with regret. That I would try to find the wisdom in something that I went through that was painful. Like, I would pick pebbles up off the ground that would 
be worthwhile for me and for my learning and for who I was and that it would not be in vain somehow. Um, and that life so often is not what you signed up for. You know, it just isn't. And that's not particular to me. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I think I had seen that already for so many people. Um, I had, gosh, God, I don't even know. I mean, a year or two after my divorce, I was walking through the, the death of a child of very dear friends of mine. Um, I had already seen this. You know, that life was not what you signed up for. Um, you were going to be asked to bear a cross somewhere at some time. And this was one of mine. So aside from work, who's Tina? What do you like? I am um, super passionate about my family and being with them. They are my light and my life in many ways. I just love being, I love being with, like my favorite thing is to be in a great big huge house in the mountains or on the beach or someplace with all of our kids around and a bunch of their friends and just listening to everybody talk and play and loud music and usually way too much alcohol and um, because they're just all so much fun. They are spirited and funny and they get into great political conversations. I just love them. They're wonderful people. Um, and I just can't believe that they're all part of our family. They're just wonderful. And I, I, another just like favorite thing is being in the center of the work that I'm doing um, and the ideas that I'm doing around um, like helping people have just much better lives around intimacy and connection and around um, the stuff around like this, the sacred feminine. Like that's really something I'm going to spend a lot more time with in the next few years and um, really want to empower um, the feminine. And that's not just with women, but with men too, like free men to feel good about the feminine sides of them and to support that in them and to support them supporting women um, and, um, and just build that voice in our world. Um, whatever that looks like, I'm not even sure. Like I want to spend some time sort of maybe in the Celtic regions and just understand that part of what's gotten lost and I just think we we need so much more of that feminine wisdom in our world and um, as clear as I am about all the sexuality stuff that I've done in the last decade I want to be that clear about the f mystic feminine the sacred feminine and then I think about sharing that with my granddaughter as she grows up and I think that's so going to be so fun to do you know, and um, help her grow up in a different world. 
Hey guys, if you are liking this podcast, would you consider going to Apple Podcasts to rate and review it? That would really help me out and I would love to hear what you are enjoying most so far. For more content and episodes, you can visit www.thecuriositycast.com or follow us on Instagram at thecuriositycast. Stay curious.